Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Casey Flaherty is well known in the world of legal innovation. His career journey has taken him to nearly every corner of the legal system. He's been a big law litigator, in-house counsel at a global 500 company, a legal operations consultant, an architect of the legal project management team at the world's largest law firm. Today, he's co-founder and chief strategy officer at LexFusion. We've talked about LexFusion before on the program, and it's a collaborative circle of hand-picked, truly excellent legal innovation companies. In Casey's role at LexFusion, he focuses on the consultative aspects of the company's go-to-market operation with an emphasis on market listening, thought leadership, and community building. Casey and I discussed why market listening is so critical to LexFusion's value proposition, how the challenges around the acquisition of technology can cause people and companies to resign themselves to the status quo. And I learned more about his current project, a maturity model of transactions that firms can use as a self-assessment. We appreciate Casey's time and hope you enjoy the conversation. Casey, how are you? Thanks for joining. I'm great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I feel like this is the first time we've ever met face-to-face, albeit virtually, but you've done so much in the profession. I feel like we should know each other, even if we don't. Well, I feel the same same way about you. Your name has rung out almost the entire time I've been a part of this profession, and we have a great mutual friend in the inimitable Jay Um. Absolutely. Who speaks fondly of you regularly. and I appreciate that. Jay is sometimes sparse in her praise, but she's 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 effusive in her praise for you. So I I know I know I know it's not just what I read. I know it to be true. So it's an honor to be speaking to you. Well, I I appreciate that. It's kind of Jay, and yes, she is sparse with her praise. That's that's a fascinating way to describe it. Uh, So you're currently with Lex Fusion, and we've had Joe on earlier who talked a little bit about Lex Fusion, but for our listeners who may have skipped that podcast or don't remember it. Tell us a little bit about what the uh, venture is and what you're doing. A little bit is hard. And I say that because we've tried multiple elevator pitches and they have all failed. And yet somehow we've still built a successful business. We accelerate the adoption of innovative legal technology and services. We work directly with the legal innovation companies. That's who pays us, but spend most of our time with customers. And those are not sales calls. They're consultative. I was a consultant for many years after being a litigator and then in-house lawyer. And I'm doing much now that I did then, except the customers aren't paying me. Uh, It's lighter touch in that I don't stay around for the big heavy lifting, but I speak to people about whatever is top of mind. Uh, What problem are they trying to solve? And I help them think through those problems and identify potential solutions, that which has problem solution fit. The reason this is attractive to our members is we have so many conversations. There are three of us in LexFusion. Over the last year, we've had over 3,000 conversations with over 250 law firms and 350 law departments. That's a lot of talking for the three of you. It's a lot of talking, but more importantly, it's a lot of listening. The market listening is absolutely essential to our value proposition, the value to our member companies who pay us. We can give them feedback from the market, but also essential to everyone in that network of who we're talking to. One of the reasons that everyone talks to us is that everybody talks to us. And so we can speak to people about what their peers in a composite form 
are doing, are thinking about, are looking at. And that adds an immense amount of value to the interaction. It's so valuable that we're completely fine with not only an interaction not producing a sale for one of our members, but an entire relationship not producing a sale. So we have people to whom we regularly speak who are unlikely to ever purchase anything from any of the member companies who actually pay us. And that's fine because knowing what's going on in their firm or their department is valuable to us, just as us being able to inform them as what's going on elsewhere, again, in composite, is valuable to them. Uh, So every node in the network increases the power of the network, leading to more and more interactions and communications, which, because of the sheer volume of it, produces a large number of organic leads for our members. So we get asked lots of questions. Our answers are always honest based on the question presented. But some of those questions, our members are the correct answer. And that ends up being a very healthy lead. It's a customer who have themselves identified a problem, are searching for a solution, and have been pointed in the direction of the member by us. And they trust us because we have added value over and over again and earned that trust. And that really is at the center of our business those relationships. So our member companies will change over time. The only thing of enduring value are those customer relationships. And so no single sale is ever worth sacrificing those customer relationships. And for me, I love it because I spend all of my time talking to people I like about problems that interest me. And in fact, I probably spend more time talking about companies we don't represent than companies we do just because of the variety of questions that are thrown my way. And a lot of times it's not even companies. A lot of times it's just making connections between peers who are working the same problem. But my favorite email introduction is you are two people who should know each other. And it's it's oftentimes peers who have a similar viewpoint, who are working on similar problems, but have not crossed paths, despite the fact that they are fellow travelers. Fair enough. How do you curate the member companies? Because you've got quite an impressive grouping of member companies. How how do the three of you find the time to vet and assimilate these member companies? It starts from all those conversations we're having. We're not the only ones sharing information. We always ask what people have seen recently that's gotten them excited, that's interesting, that's new. And that's the first filter. Are the the people we're talking to interested in something? The next filter is uh, a bit of Marie Kondo. Uh, Does it bring me joy? Uh, when I, when I, I look at an enormous amount of legal tech and much of it is solid and solves real problems, but doesn't excite me in, in any way. It doesn't, I'm not enthusiastic about it, which doesn't mean there's something wrong with it. It just doesn't get above that threshold of, wow, I'm really excited about that. And for that reason, we are very, very slow to add members. There's a large number of companies who've contacted us and expressed interest And because we spend so much time vetting our companies, learning our companies, and then partnering with our companies, we are in absolutely no rush to add, add new members. Since I've joined, we've added one and that's, that's 14 months. And we've probably had 200 conversations, almost all of them inbound of companies expressing interest in us. You're lousy for choices. That's great. So one of the things I've noticed over the past year in the world of legal tech is there seems to be a bit of consolidation going on, a number of companies buying other companies. Latera, for example, has bought a whole bunch of companies over there. Are you seeing any type of trend in consolidation and 
legal tech or is the proliferation still out there in terms of all the various opportunities for people? So the new companies are certainly starting up faster than the established companies can acquire them. Consolidation has been a fact of life in this space for quite some time, whether it's Thompson, Lexus, Intap, and the e-discovery side, Epic. There's always been consolidation. I think we just pay attention to it a bit more these days. Now, ultimately, I think consolidation is inevitable, but I don't think we're at a point where there is that high level of consolidation where you don't have multiple viable options for almost any kind of tech you're looking at, where the consolidators should ultimately realize an advantage is if their integration strategies and product development strategies match their acquisition strategies. So if they're putting as much effort into integrating the products they're buying and further developing those products, they should be able to develop a lead because of the synergies among their products. One of the hardest things in legal tech is the proliferation of point solutions and the fact that they don't integrate with each other in meaningful ways. And we absolutely have an interoperability problem from a legal tech perspective that we're a long way from solving and is a huge barrier to adoption. Yeah, absolutely. In all of your conversations, are there themes that emerge in terms of the problems buyers are trying to solve through the use of technology? Is there one or two sort of typical issues you'll see rise over and over again? It goes in waves. There are different things that seem to capture the zeitgeist for periods of time. I would say in the corporate space, it's been CLM for a while. Law firms are less consistent in that regard. There, it tends to be more generic, where people are very excited about blockchain or AI or categories of tech as opposed to applications thereof. And so people will get orders to go out and look at AI, even though that's not really a meaningful directive. I was going to say, I don't know what I would do if I was told to go look at AI and go, well, I'll go watch some movies, I suppose. You're a prolific writer. And one of the articles you wrote that struck home with me was you talked about the need to think the problem people have in in skipping over the process and cultural challenges to the implementation of technology. What challenges have you seen in that respect? The challenges come later uh, because people don't recognize the challenges they have. It's much more palatable to describe your problems as an absence of something, in this case, technology that can be acquired, as opposed to the presence of something that needs to be fixed. And oftentimes that's cultural debt and process debt around the way that work gets done. And there is this hope that by bringing in technology, you're going to be able to smooth over those issues. It is a vain hope. And all it really does is harden those process and cultural issues because once they prove impervious to the tech, people resign themselves to the status quo. This is just the way it is. And use that failure to reject other efforts to change the way that that work is done. So this is an immense challenge and it applies across the board. So the post you're referring to is entitled Tech First Failures. It's on Three Geeks in a Law Blog. 
Uh, it's about contract lifecycle management. It started with a complaint by a customer against a large CLM provider, but that article could have just as easily been written about law firm panel programs that clients put together, bringing in workflow technology into law firms or law departments, knowledge management projects in law firms and law departments go all the way down the line and it applies. And your consultative role as you're talking about opportunities and problem solving. I assume you have this conversation with your contacts. What challenges do they present to following this path? I mean, I know the answer I draw from my experience, but I'm interested in your experience because this is, it's clearly the right approach, but it's a challenging implementation because it requires dealing with people and getting them to change and getting them to change the way their mindsets. How do you deal with that in this consultative approach? Well, oftentimes I tell people to not go down a particular path unless they're truly committed, there's leadership buy-in, et cetera. All, you can go down the whole list of change management prerequisites. I encourage focus. Oftentimes people have too many initiatives going at a single time, jack of all trades, master of none type dispersion of their energy. So I encourage focus, thoughtfulness, and that sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. And so I, I have, I have in fact dissuaded people from undertaking large ambitious initiatives when the conditions aren't right and help redirect their energy towards that which is achievable. But I've, al- I've also done the opposite where I've seen people focused on very small bore initiatives that don't actually move the needle on the real problem they're trying to solve and talking to them about what is required to solve that problem that they've already decided should be solved but are approaching in a way that really isn't going to make a material difference. Because again, that's that's a different kind of failure. If we're trying to drive a particular kind of change, and but we're going about it in a way that doesn't bring it about, even if the thing we did was in and of itself successful for what it was, we're still not anywhere closer to our, our actual goal. And that's another part of focus is picking the right goals and picking the right path to move towards them. Sometimes you find the wrong goals and sometimes you find people with the right goals on the wrong path. You've been with Lux Fusion for about a year, a little over a year, and you've had the most fascinating background leading up to it. It sort of started in what looks like a traditional way, undergraduate, law school, associate in litigation group at Holland and Knight, which is a great firm where you're there for four or five years. And then you moved to Kia Motors, where I, I think a description I heard you give on another podcast was where you drifted into legal ops. I'm fascinated how that movement came, not necessarily the move to Kia Motors, because I understand the lure of in-house jobs, but your experience at Kia Motors, where you, you moved into legal ops, you created the legal tech audit, service delivery review, some really advanced programs, certainly for their time. What was it about that atmosphere or culture that, that sort of gave you the freedom and flexibility to begin to explore these these methodologies? I'm not sure it was anything about the culture. I think it was simply a matter of positional authority. As a as an associate, I was looking around the firm and saying, Well, this is nuts. And the <laughs> the, the the this had nothing to do with the immense legal expertise that was so valuable to clients. It had nothing to do with people's almost supernatural work ethics. These were very smart people working very hard with the best of intentions and really achieving great results for their clients. But I saw 
process and tech as a drag on their productivity, where ultimately we need to figure out ways to leverage domain expertise and hard work through process and technology. And being in the buyer's seat, I had an opportunity to actually demand that, to set clear expectations. And the difference between what I did and what unfortunately a lot of clients still do is the clarity of those expectations. It is not enough to announce that you want your law firms to be innovative. It's not enough to put in generic questions about innovation into your RFI or RFPs so that you elicit long narrative generic answers about innovation. When you are the channel captain, you are the urgency driver. You need to take an active role in shaping the way that legal services are delivered to the ultimate client. And I did that and I enjoyed it and I think it's important and it is still exceedingly rare. And it's rare in part because people are bandwidth constrained. Everybody's busy. It's rare because it's a different kind of mindset that is not quite universal. <laughs> I don't even, right. I, I, I don't even think it, there's a plurality. And finally, there's a knowledge issue. The people who would be in a position to drive it don't necessarily know what good looks like from a service delivery perspective, that leveraging through process and technology. They know what the expertise looks like, but not what good looks like from a service delivery perspective. And so there, there are lots of challenges to doing that right. And I wrote a guidebook on how to do it, which I now consider to be a modest failure. It was wonderful for me personally, resulted in quite a few consulting gigs, bolstered my personal brand, et cetera. But the approach was not something that could be meaningfully applied by the vast majority of law departments. And I'm, I'm currently in the process of, of rectifying that and working on a, a new way to enhance the structured dialogue between law firms and law departments on legal service delivery. Give us a couple of key themes of the course correction you're trying to advocate. I am working on a maturity model of first focusing on transactions. Litigation will be next. It is far more prescriptive than anything I've done before. While it is tool agnostic, it is not neutral on what good looks like. It's something firms can use on themselves as self-assessment, or it's something that clients can send out as an RFI. And instead of narratives, it's presented as binary questions, bright lines, most of which are yes or no, some of which are above or below or some variants thereof, but very, very concrete bright line questions. So for example, I helped build the legal project management team at Baker McKenzie. I was brought in to help further build out an amazing LPM team at Baker McKenzie. They were great when I got there and they were still great, but much, much larger when I left. And I'm very proud of that and proud of being associated with them. But that's an area where I have spent a lot of time. So the questions in the maturity model on LPM at the moment, do you have legal project managers? Yes or no? If it's yes, are they assigned to actively manage transactions? Yes or no? If it's yes, do you have shareable, clearly articulated criteria for which transactions or portfolios they are assigned to? Yes or no? And is the ratio of equity partners to legal project managers above or below 10 to 1? So these are very binary questions. And those translate into maturity levels. We don't have LPMs is unstructured. We have LPMs, but they don't actively matter. Manage matters is nascent. We have LPMs. We do assign them to matters, but we don't necessarily have criteria or a large number of them. In the current world is mature. In a future world, I hope it's not, but in the current world, it's mature. And then advanced is 
We have them, we have criteria for assigning them, and we have a lot of them. And that's advanced. So that is a very different approach than tell me about LPM. And where it gets really different is that there are 27 of those types of questions grouped into eight categories, all of which compute into a maturity score, which is an actual number that clients can use to compare firms to each other. Though my personal preference would be that they do it with their main firms and they compare the firms to themselves over time to make sure that they are investing. The standard itself will change over time. It will be on a regular refresh cadence of every six months with release notes. So everyone knows what's changed and it will be a communal standard. I've already sent it to over 140 people for peer review. It's on its second version. The third version will be put up on a microsite for community review, allowing anyone from the community to contribute, to refine the questions, add categories, change what constitutes the various levels of maturity, and then it will be freely available to firms and clients to send to their firms. It sounds awesome. I can hardly wait to take a look at it. You mentioned your experience at Baker. It seems like a fascinating challenge to build a project management team at scale on the size you must have been building at Baker. Baker's the world's largest law firm. I can't think of anybody that's taken on this kind of challenge and obviously succeeded at the level you did. What are the challenges of scaling a legal project management team like you had to do across, I don't even know how many countries Baker's in, and I've lost count. Globally, it must have been a fascinating challenge. It was a fascinating challenge. It was successful, but it was successful not because of me personally, but because the conditions were ripe for it. There was a pre-existing team that had done excellent work. Because of that, there were champions and sponsors in various key positions. There was a compelling value proposition. It's not only something that clients care about. It can help you win mandates, but project management done well. All projects are managed. The only question is whether they're managed well. Leads to higher quality outcomes, faster, on budget, with less waste. And that shows up in client satisfaction, but it also shows up in realization rates, which spike quite precipitously when an LPM is put on a matter in a position where they can make a difference. And that is working directly with the partner. And that tends to be on matters and portfolios of a particular size, where there's lots of moving pieces, where active project management can make the most difference. And so it was about identifying those types of matters, who had those books of business, and going out and convincing them to give LPM a try, which was much easier to do because we had other partners who'd already used LPM who could vouch for us. We already had the numbers from that. So we, we were really well positioned to make the case that partners should, should use LPM. And to their credit, they did and they continue to. I was actually, I just got back from London where I had a few pints with my successor. The team is still growing and fully utilized, which is wonderful. And so it's a compelling value proposition in a place where the conditions were right. And while, while I am certainly proud of the work I put in, if either of those things were not true, it wouldn't matter how hard I worked or how good I am. Right. Give us some sense of the, without disclosing any confidential stuff from Baker, what was the size of the group when you started and what did it grow to at the time you left? Give us some sense of magnitude. It was around 20 and we got it up to over 60. That's huge growth. And yeah, in about two years. And that was with a substantial slowdown due to COVID and other 
other factors that are public knowledge, but I'm not going to discuss here. It was a very challenging time at the firm overall, even pre-COVID. So a lot of things were moving slower than they, they would have normally. So we, even despite all that, those headwinds, we were able to, to grow up quickly. And again, that's testament to the leadership of the firm, leadership of the partner champions, and just a really great team doing great work. And how have you enjoyed being back in the middle of the ecosystem? Oh, it's been wonderful. I spoke earlier about the importance of focus and focus is important. And that's something that I got to do at Baker, dig into a specific problem and work the problem to the point of resolution. But I very much enjoy the variety of my current day to day. I get to have so many different conversations with so many different people on so many different topics and it's invigorating and keeps me engaged. So it's been wonderful. That's fabulous. I can't, I can't imagine you have one day that's identical to the one before. Every day is a little bit different, I would think. Every single day is different. And some days I actually need a little repetition. And that repetition is about clearing my calendar uh, <laughs> to get work done. I still have work that needs to get done. It's not all telephone calls. Fair enough. Well, Casey, we're, we're out of time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the discussion and, and your insights. And thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure to finally meet you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.